In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit sift.com slash assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So Rob Daleen is from Arc Owl. Rob, I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself, where you're from, who you represent, like we always do, and then we'll jump right in. Yeah, I'm I'm from Arc Owl. Um, we're a company in the fraud industry that helps with uh, know your customer, customer verification, uh, whether you're knowing them for uh, determining good or determining bad. Uh, we add that extra data to help with that. Yeah, and this is definitely a huge, huge issue. So we really appreciate you coming on. We're seeing more and more of this know your customer um, coming up as as we're seeing more sophisticated attacks. So I want to dive right in here. Take me, take me through for someone who maybe has a very base level knowledge of it. Take me through what exactly that term means, what it encompasses, and and how it's related to fraud prevention. Yeah, I'll, I'll start a little bit with my background. I myself was a fraud analyst to start, and that's where, um, where, where we came up with ArcOwl was uh, my need uh, as an analyst to find the extra data. Uh, normally, I was, uh, as an analyst, I was given the, the email address, uh, not the credit card info, but you know, a CVV match, right? You're given that. Uh, the address, the billing shipping, you'll get a phone number. Uh, and based off that information, your job as an analyst is to make the call and the decision approve or deny. Does this look fishy? Does it not? Um, you'll get the pricing of the order. So that's that's one thing you have to go off of the timing, um, the, the geolocation. Uh, so one of the needs we really saw, one of the needs that's still there today is um, that the email address, the phone number, they come in with the online orders. And it's, it's like walking into a store, uh, with a mascot and wearing all black, you know, that's every single order you see, uh, online or where there's no person present, uh, unless the customer volunteers data, but even still, you still have to research and say, is the customer lying to me? So unlike with face-to-face, you can just see it with your eyes. With an online order, you're kind of veiled. You're in the dark. So that's where, you know, kind of even the name Owl, you know, seeing in the dark, you know, providing uh, some of that visualization, uh, the reverse lookup for the phone number, the reverse lookup for the email address, tying them with address and IP address, um, you know, just really brings to light uh, what you're looking at or what you could be looking at. Awesome. So I want you to take me through kind of 
how this concept plays into the history of fraud prevention and chargeback prevention, because I think a lot of people out there would wonder why your service is particularly necessary, right? We have a lot of these chargeback solutions that um, do a lot of machine learning. They're very, very powerful technological solutions for this. Are you supplementing that? Are you in replacement of that? Where do you fit in to the ecosystem? That's a great question. We add to it. Um, so a lot of times, uh, even you know, when I was an analyst, I felt like I was an analyst um, to just go out and find data. And I felt like that was my job was to go find data because there was data out there that could clearly say, you know, approve this order, get it out the door quickly. But I, my role was to go find it, not necessarily make the decision. You know, if I found the right data, the decision came easy. So when it comes to machine learning, um, you can have the right process in place to say, given this data that came in, um, you know, oftentimes this is fraud, this is good, let it out the door. Uh, there's still an engine making that decision. It, that engine is going off of the data that it receives. Uh, the more data that you have, the better informed decision that you're making. And with more information, more informed decisions, obviously that's going to be the best decision that you can make. <laughs> right. Of course. So, so we, we provide information. Um, my, I felt like my role as an analyst was to gather the information and make a decision on it. So my role was kind of the data provider and the decision maker as an analyst. So yes. sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, take me through maybe some of the examples that you've had in your career <clears throat> Um, for our fraud analysts that are out there of, of how you approached using this data um, and some decisions that you made one way or the other based off of it. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I think kind of the rumblings of, you know, ideas forming when I was an analyst was uh, there was one moment, one order where the, the email address looked really off as far as the handle there was numbers in a wrong place and it looked like, why would I create this email if I'm a legit customer? So I brought it to, uh, I wanted to first even look and see if the email existed. It was a Yahoo email. I brought it to Yahoo to see if I could register the email. And it said that I could register it. I didn't register it. I didn't go all the way through with that, but it said I could register it. And so I was like, well, this can't be the real customer's email because I can register it. Um, but did that mean it was fraud? I looked and saw that it was a phone order. And so I actually thought through it and thought, you know, if, if I was the, the operator on the phone taking this, this order in the call center, uh, I might have replaced this. Um, this letter with a number. And so I actually guessed at what the email could be. Um, based on potential mishearings, misspellings. Uh, and that email was actually a legitimate email um, based on that I could put it in the Yahoo system and it wasn't available for registration. Um, so I actually ended up letting the order through even though it had um, a bad email because I saw a way to approve it that way. So that's, that's an example as an analyst where that extra data 
of being able to recognize, you know, hey, this was a phone order. This email is, it doesn't exist, but at the same time, could it exist? Right. Uh, so you mentioned they, earlier, you mentioned earlier that you guys view yourselves as a kind of a supplement to some of the, the chargeback prevention solutions or fraud prevention solutions that are out there on the market. It It's interesting to me that when you when you're operating as a fraud analyst and you have all these powerful tools and you're getting these responses back out of these these systems what are you checking in in your career what is your advice to people about what they should be looking for that these solutions can miss that you might be able to i think what you were just talking about is one very, very specific example, but if you could take me into more of your general strategic thinking when you're looking at the outputs of some of the chargeback solutions, or chargeback prevention solutions, sorry, what what your general mindset is, how you go about making these evaluations and what you're trying to use this additional data to do strategically. Yeah, I think... Um... I think I had really good training uh, for fraud. It wasn't long training, but I, I really liked the mentality uh, to the training I got. And the training I got was to figure out a way to approve the order, figure out a way to make sure this is a good customer as opposed to looking at an order um, saying, could this be fraud? Um, you know, really thinking of the business first, that we're really wanting to see people as, um, as good customers, as potential, um, as potential business. And so as a fraud analyst looking at that, I am looking for any sort of data that would tell me, um, you know, is, is this good? And so that, that would be, you know, my process with the kind of the example I gave was, you know, okay, this email looks terrible. How can I see it as good? How can I, um, how can I, is there any excuse I can give to let this out the door? Um, and I would go to many different services. Uh, one of the main things that I would look at, um, you know, is it, is it a mobile order? Is it an online order? Uh, what is the main point of data that both the fraudster and customer alike um, how, how do they receive the confirmation or the receipt? And when it comes to an online order, a lot of times it's the email, email correspondence. So the fraudster is going to want the email. The legitimate customer is going to want the email. So in the cases where you're looking at a fraud order, um, the email addresses that are given will normally go back to the fraudster because the fraudster wants to make sure they get their order. Um, so I look at it like, what is, the, uh, what is the method of communication to the customer? That is the first data point I need to focus on verifying. Um, if it's the phone number, uh, we need to look at the phone number because um, even the legitimate customer isn't going to necessarily care um, if they give the right email, if all the communication is going through the phone number, same with like physical addresses, right? Um, <clears throat> so how, how is the customer being communicated with? Let's focus on that, uh, that data point and let's find everything we can on it 
um, to, to try to give an excuse for, is this a good customer? So as we're going into this recessionary environment, which everyone is talking about, I'm interested how you square that bias towards approval, we'll call it, with the pressure that you come under as an analyst to do your job, for lack of a better term, and not have a ton of of chargebacks coming through. Do you have a a threshold in these situations? Do you just go by feel? What do you do when you get back a lot of chargebacks? Maybe in a couple months, you hear, hey, these orders that we approved are actually fraud. How are you making those adjustments along the way and, and dealing with those conflicting pressures? Yeah, I really, um, my bias is to err on the side of more chargebacks as opposed to zero chargebacks. If you have, um, if you're an analyst and you have zero chargebacks, that means you stop some good orders. Um, and, and you stopped too many good orders if you have zero. Um, but uh, I would really look to uh, the management, the company philosophy, um, those that are, uh, are above me in the process to say, hey, um, is this, too many chargebacks um, because uh, there, <clears throat> even if you look at kind of the, uh, some of the models and businesses in the past, um, you know, one of the, uh, one of my favorite kind of things to look at is um, there was a, a book that talked about how a company just completely neglected their fraud process uh, it was a physical store, not online. Uh, you'll get killed online if you do that. But, um, you know, there's a physical store. They didn't care. They would prefer, you know, good customer experience over the fraud losses that they had. So I would really look to business management to tell me what is the acceptable fraud loss. Um, and really, I don't want to let bad orders through. If they're obviously bad, let's stop them. But if they're debatable, um, maybe we let one through. And we you know, take all the data and then look in the future and say, okay, you know, we're seeing this data again. It's for a much higher dollar order. Um, you know, do we really want to let this one through given that the last one, um, you know, looked debatable, right? So my, my error is to have, have some chargebacks. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, I want to also ask you a little bit along this subject. Where do you think fraud analysts fall short the most in your experience? Not asking you to name names or places, but in your general sense, what, if you had to give people out there one piece of advice that you've just seen as a, a common mistake, what would it be? I think uh, we were able to start our our business because uh, I noticed that when looking at previous work of of analysts that I had worked with, they they weren't doing all the data checks that I was doing, and there was obvious fraud missed because some of these data checks weren't checked. It wasn't that they didn't have um, analytical skills or even that kind of six cents as far as what was fraud. It just, it wasn't enough data 
that they were looking at to make the decision. I was able to see based on their notes, you know, this is how much data they checked and they basically guessed from there. And it was a good guess, but if they had, you know, two or three extra data points, it would be obviously one way or the other. Are there common data points that are frequently overlooked? Um, well, where, where we started was the email address. A lot of these, maybe I would say technical uh, data points that uh, aren't necessarily as easy to line up as just saying, oh, you know, this address has a relative that goes to the name that was given. Um, with the email address, uh, especially when we started, we were able to say, you know, this email address was created relatively recently. And if you didn't check the system that could say it was created recently, um, that, that was a huge data point to say, you know, red flag. <laughs> yeah, everything looks good, but this is an absolute red flag. Cancel it. Um, you know, even uh, I'll, I'll go through my spam folder from time to time and just start throwing stuff into our service and uh, there'll be a few things that I'll look at that I'm like, wow, um, you know, I probably uh, think twice about approving an order with this info. Um, one of the one of the examples of that was I was uh, looking for tickets to a hockey game, and I was seeing all of these phone numbers on Craigslist, you know, of who to call for tickets, and I kept putting them into Arco, and every single one of them was uh, VOIP. Every single one of them was, you know, get this phone number online. Um, so I, I knew that they probably weren't in the area. I messaged them anyways, and they wanted, you know, me to pay them over Venmo and <laughs> all sorts of kind of shady behavior there. But knowing that it was a VOIP phone number to start, um, you know, I'm already on alert with talking right. with them. So I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about the future, which I do very often on this podcast. As we move towards new forms of technology, um, in-car technology, um, AR, VR, we talk a lot about here, the metaverse, quote unquote, where do you see the the know your customer paradigm moving in the future where what data points do you think you're going to be collecting in the future and how are the how is that going to augment what you're able to do now what are the challenges that it's going to bring what are you guys looking at as as we move towards these these new immersive technologies i think um you you want to stay uh stay focused on being able to get the, the most specific data possible. Um, so at the email address, we want to have the most specific data possible. Um, you know, but, uh, uh, one of the shifts that we've maybe made, uh, and it's not necessarily a shift because we're keeping what we have. Um, but as far as planning for the future, uh, we've, we've started to compile and collect more correlation data, you know, has this data been seen with other data points, you know, has address been seen with, you know, this phone number before, how, uh, how similar is it, you know, could, could this be somebody on vacation, 
Um, and so our, our focus on the future is focused on uh, a lot of um, maybe correlations between different, different data inputs. So, you know, let's say that uh, email address and phone number uh, aren't data points uh, in the future that are needed based on where technology goes 20 years from now. Um, being able to correlate data points and have um, different ways to really say technically, uh, here's how to make it where this person walking into your online store isn't a, uh, a masked <laughs> unknown individual. Right. And then to, to finish up here, I want to ask you a question that's very near and dear to our hearts here at Merchant Fraud Journal, which is the future of the human fraud analyst. Because obviously the death of the fraud analyst has been prognosticated for basically the last decade and certainly has not arrived. We don't think it will ever arrive. But I'm curious to hear from you what your thoughts are on that as we develop these more and more complex and accurate algorithms as we develop more and more complex technologies that make it just more and more difficult for a human to ingest all of the information that needs to be ingested and analyze it the way that a computer can. What do you think the future of the fraud, human fraud analyst is going to be in the next five, 10 years? Well, obviously, I hope <laughs> I hope they're still around. I think um, you know, looking at whether it's machine or analyst, um, you know, you're you're there to make a decision based on the data provided. Um, whether a machine is better than a human has been kind of the debate of of movies for the past <laughs> almost two centuries <laughs> now, right? But um, yeah, I think. Uh, uh, if the fraudster is is human and not a bot, um, I think there will be that need for the analyst to be human and not a bot. Um, need for the human to be able to see those new things that the human is doing. But you know, if if the fraud turns to all bots, you know, it it seems logical for the the analyst to be able to turn all bots to. So, so that's interesting in that, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, you think that the role of the human analyst is not so much that it will crunch numbers faster or be able to intuit fraud in a way, you said, I think you called it a sixth sense before, but it's really more the adaptability to new attacks that will, will always keep the, the human relevant where you, you don't think a machine would be able to, to do that in the same way. I believe so. I'm not, I'm not claiming to know, know the future, <laughs> but it's, uh, <laughs> that's I what we do on this podcast. Yeah. We predict the future. Um, that's, that's <laughs> kind of the, um, the way I think about it is that if, if a human's on the other side, a human's going to be needed on, on that side too. Um, Interesting. So, but you know, I don't, I don't know the future, and you know, there's, there's tons of really cool new technologies out there that I really, you know, I don't want to discredit either. <laughs> but, 
No, but it makes sense. It's uh, <clears throat> it's we personally feel that the human touch, like you said, that the human ability to kind of think about things outside of an algorithmic way and spot maybe new patterns. So even if a person is not going to be nearly as efficient at spotting known patterns, a, an algorithm can only spot what you tell it to spot. And so if you don't have someone actively involved that's looking at these things systematically, intelligently, then you're not going to be able to adapt. And, and in fraud prevention, that's really the name of the game is constant adaptation. It's a cat and mouse game between the fraudsters and the people trying to stop them, which I think is why a lot of fraud analysts enjoy their jobs. And that requires a, a person. It's like playing a chess game that the rules are constantly shifting. So if the computer knows how to play traditional chess better, that's one thing. But if you add a couple rows and move where the pieces are, it takes the it takes the machine a, a while, a couple of, of iterations to learn the new rules and apply them better than a human will. But in business, that could be enough chargebacks to to get your credit card processing yeah. frozen before yeah. before your machine figures it out. Um, I, I like that. I think um, <clears throat> even thinking about uh, you know, I was reading articles where they're um, the machines are mimicking an artist's style. And doing paintings, and I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, of um, course. But uh, yeah, there's there's not machines yet that can do their own original creation that has no influence, right? Right, of course, because that's what an algorithm is. Is, is to my understanding, I'm not a math person, but it's kind of taking inputs and generating outputs. So you're constrained in a little bit to what the algorithm can do. Whereas human creativity and adaptability, evolutionarily, we're, we're the best system that's been created so far to do that. So, well, Rob, I really appreciate your time and talking about this. It's a really important subject. As, as we all know, it's been out there. And I really appreciate you coming on and bringing some clarity and some really good insights. So uh, I'll let you sign off, letting people ever know one more time where they can find you on the web. And then hopefully we can have you back uh, to see if you predicted the future correctly. <laughs> well, I, I, that'd be pretty fun. I, I should probably buy a lottery ticket if that happens. I was going to say, if you do, I also have tickets to Vegas on the company dime for you. All right. <laughs> so, Well, hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks very much. Take care, man. You too.